again to the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. I'm very pleased to introduce today's episode in which I talk to the well-known science textbook writer, Mark Leavesley. Anyone who's ever taught or learned key tree science over the past 20 years is likely to come across his internationally renowned Exploring Science textbooks. They've been the bedrock resource for many at 11 to 14 science curriculum across the world. In our conversation, we talk through his early experience of scientific research before moving on to his work as a science teacher. Mark shares how after joining his second school, he was asked to teach out of specialism and to take on physics for years seven and eight. The less than engaging resources at the time inspired him to make his own support materials for the pupils. After using them with his classes for a number of years, they by chance got picked up by a publisher. This led him to being recruited to a new project for Key Stage 3 Science that ended up being the well-known Exploring Science series. The rest, as they say, is history. Mark talks through the challenges of being a science resource writer and choosing the right models and succinct language that helps students to understand scientific concepts. Make sure you stay tuned to the end to hear Mark's favourite experiment that really makes pupils think. Without further ado, let's hear Mark's view from the lab. I wanted to start off really just digging into, because I'm always interested in uh, people's kind of how they came to science, so to speak, and and what was it about science that really intrigued them. And so for you, was it a a personal interest when you were a young person that you just liked science or did you have a family background in science? What was it that first kind of sparked your interest in science in generally? And maybe you, you had a specific area of science you were really fascinated by. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, well, I grew up on a farm, so I guess I've always had a, a sort of love of the outdoors and, and nature and, and plants and, and animals and, and biology in general. Uh, but I think my real interest was sparked when I was at secondary school and I had a particularly inspirational biology teacher who taught me for five years. Uh, he was he was an ex-GP who had gone into teaching and I sort of loved the stories that he told about uh, his his time dealing with patients and and uh, sort of medical applications and all the rest of it. And he was just a particularly good, uh, inspiring teacher and someone who who was able to take the the syllabus as it was and 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 put his own passion into it and spend extra time and do things which weren't quite in the syllabus as well. Um, so so that I, I just found that incredibly motivational and and that's I think where my love of biology uh, biology came from. And that must have been, an, I guess, an incredibly rare thing. I think these days I can't imagine um, doctors perhaps uh, leaving their medical career, perhaps, <laughs> um, kind of dabbling in, in teaching. That must have been a quite a, maybe even a rare thing uh, back then, I guess. But it must, as you say, it must have been great to have a teacher that. Um, maybe veers off from the the syllabus or the specification, as they say these days, um, uh, and, and d- delve into those deeper stories. Do you think there was maybe when, when you were at school, there was less of a, um, a pressure on examination results per se, and, you know, so the, so the, so the curriculum could be widened a little bit? Do you think, think that's changed over the years a little bit? Or? I, I, well, I, I do get the impression it's changed. I, you know, it was so long ago now <laughs> since I did my, my O-levels uh, that, uh, that, I do remember there being quite a lot of pressure to, to to get decent results and all the rest of it, but I don't remember it being quite so funneled in the way that it is it is now. And and there just seemed to be a bit more time for for teachers to take a to, to take to take a step away from the specification and to do other things. And you know, I I found that 
um, not not only in my my science studies, particularly this particular teacher, but also I remember a, a particularly inspiring English teacher who who I think wrote to the exam board to request that we did a specific book that wasn't on their list of books that we should be studying for for English literature, and and so so I think there was a there was a there was a greater degree of leeway then, uh, which which we seem to have lost. So, um, I mean, you must have thinking about. I know you've you've had a significant career, obviously, in in science science publishing, and you must see the subtle changes as as the years years go by. Um, are there are there certain things um, you think that will never be taken out of the science education? <laughs> They're always going to be there. Go, oh no, I've got to do this again. I've got to do a section of this again. Uh, are, there, are there things that you think you know are fundamental that um, have you know but, you know even twenty years ago you think there's there's some fundamental ideas that you keep on returning to I guess which we have to in science of course are there any things that have never been taken out in your mind uh, in terms of uh, the content you've been been making over the years photosynthesis I'm always <laughs> writing about photosynthesis <laughs> good old photosynthesis and the, the periodic table and it's. For me, I find it quite quite interesting, and part of the challenge comes when I've got to write about photosynthesis again, and and I'd like to approach it in a new way, one that I haven't uh, I haven't a, a way in which I haven't approached it before. So that's that's the challenge, and that's where the interest comes. And equally, you know, as as time goes on, there are there are different examples you can give of photosynthesis, different stories you can tell about it. The um, the research now into into trying to maybe generate hydrogen using a form of photosynthesis, taking the enzyme chain and, and cutting it in half so that you can you can get an artificial uh, form of photosynthesis that produces hydrogen in order to to power your cars. Uh, looking at uh, using algae to produce petrol substitutes, all those sorts of things. So so those are new things in science that, that come on that, that are still based on good old photosynthesis. So that there's always new angles you can take, and that, that's part of the interest of, of, of the writing process for me. Yeah, and I guess um, I'm thinking about kind of, and now, now you've got me down a photosynthesis route, I'm thinking about, um, <laughs> uh, I remember hearing on the radio last year, I think, uh, which really surprised me, um, and maybe in a, 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 a uh, and a, a good application of photosynthesis are these these um, I can't even remember the, the technical name for them, but they have these big I want to say hydroponics, but um, farms up in the northeast, yeah. which seems strange. They're growing massive tomatoes, you know, tomato, cucumbers, um, and in a very efficient way that you wouldn't expect to be able to um, uh, do, you know, in a, in a northern uh, European country. Um, but yet, as you say, you know that people are always um, trying to refine and, and, and make things better. And although it's a fundamental principle, um, it's, I guess, finding the story around that. And, as, and I guess what, that's what teachers are also trying to do. You know, how can we make this fundamental concept seem uh, re- relevant and modern, which, which is obviously what, you, what, what you've been talking about um, with regards to that. I mean, when you went into, the, into science yourself, so did you, I guess you went down a biological route in um, the um, uh, university, I guess. Yes, so I did. I also loved chemistry, so I did a, a a BSc in biochemistry, and at that stage, um, molecular biology was in its infancy, and that and and molecular genetics particularly uh, interested me. So I stayed on it uh, in my uh, tertiary studies and did a, a PhD in molecular genetics, um, and I. 
I'm not sure whether I, I ever made the, the, the greatest laboratory scientist. I have to say that um, the experience for me was quite disappointing because having been so inspired by uh, molecular biology and all the things that it promised, actually the day-to-day -day lab work was incredibly dull. Um, and <laughs> I suspect that I would have fared better today um, in that you know some of the experiments that I was doing uh, would take weeks and, and now you've got a machine that does it really in a matter of minutes and, and you get instant results. So I think I would have fared better, but I did find, I did find the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, lab work uh, pretty, pretty dull. Uh, but through, uh, you know, through doing PhD and, and being in academia um, in, in a university, I did discover a love of teaching um, and uh, you know the part of the job that I really enjoyed was lecturing so so that's what sort of inspired me to to then think well actually I'm I'm probably better off um, educating and communicating science rather than doing it myself. Okay and did you have experience uh, just in the university sector or did you do a bit in schools because um, we had a conversation earlier and I know you didn't do uh, years and years of face-to-face -face teaching, but did you do, how, what was your experience uh, initially of kind of the, the, your teaching science experience? Well, so having having decided to, to, to go and become a teacher, I taught for a total of uh, six years. Um, and uh, it, it was my intention to, to, to stay in teaching, really. Um, so the, the, the science writing came about from... from uh, a slightly strange angle. The the uh, the school I was the second school I was teaching in. Um, they said, "Of course, we're we're going to expect you to teach uh, years seven and eight physics." And I was thinking, "Oh, all right." Um, no, until that time, I'd only ever taught biology and chemistry, and I thought, "Well, you know, I understand years seven and eight physics, and I can teach it, but I probably don't have the passion that a real physicist would have." Um, so I said, oh, yeah, all right. And then I looked at the books that I was supposed to be using to teach years seven and eight physics. And I, I said to them, I can't teach out of this. This is just as dull as ditch water. And so we came to a deal that I would teach years seven and eight physics and I could buy some new books for the department, some new physics books for the department. So I looked at every single physics book on the market and I thought they were all awful. So I simply sat down over the <laughs> summer and I wrote my own physics textbook. And it was just a photocopied affair, but I used that with the kids for the next four years, I guess. Um, and then out of the blue, um, a lady from what was then Addison Wesley Longman, which then subsequently became part of Pearson, uh, phoned me up out of the blue. And she said, oh, I've, I've seen a copy of your physics textbook and I'd like to publish part of it. Would that be all right? And I thought, oh, well, that's not quite, quite what I expected. But yes, absolutely. And then she said, well, you know, would you be interested in, in doing some more writing for us? Um, so I said, yes, I, I, I guess so. So I started doing some, some, some writing and I did that for um, not very long, for six months or so. And then I was called into the offices and, and asked whether I would take the lead on a new product for Key Stage 3, which was coming out, which would become Exploring Science. Um, and... Uh, whether I'd be interested in doing that. So I said, well, yes, it's come at a, a particularly good time because I was thinking about uh, changing schools anyway. So what I'll do is I'll take a sabbatical year and, and do this for you uh, while, while I'm uh, looking at other schools to move to. Um, as it happened, um, 
exploring science became uh, rather bigger than I think the original intentions were for it. Um, and I never went back full time into into classroom teaching. Um, and so I have been for the last uh, what twenty two years. <laughs> I have been a a science education writer. And so, um, so in a sense, I suppose you were solving solving or scratching your own itch. You were solving your own problem, and then that obviously led to uh, an opportunity that was unforeseen in a sense uh, at, at the time, um, and has has put you um, very much into I guess the eleven to fourteen part of the the, uh, the English curriculum. I mean, I was gonna, I was thinking about whether that was a a conscious decision as you've carried on in your career. So um, obviously, you know, exploring science is very famous and I've seen it in many schools. I taught in a variety of schools and there was at least uh, some sets of exploring science within those um, uh, schools, uh, even if uh, they were, you know, uh, some were older than others, obviously. Um, but uh, in terms of the way you've decided to just stay down that road, I mean, were you ever tempted to kind of widen, you know, when you move up to like 11 to 18, etc., you've obviously ch different challenges there. Is it, do you, do you like that uh, particular area of science for the, for the, in a sense, the younger children, because it gives you a bit more scope or is it just, just the way it's worked out for you? It, it, it's, it's a bit of both. I do, I do enjoy that age group. Um, but I, I guess that because I wrote originally for for that for for years seven and eight uh, you know back with my my original physics my original physics book um i sort of and then i took on exploring science i have i have sort of pretty much stayed in 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 that that lower second secondary sphere but it it is it is a a part of the education spectrum that i enjoy i like uh interacting with 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 kids of that age uh, and and I, I find that they have less, fewer preconceived ideas about what science is, and and the particularly in key stage three, I think that the 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 curriculum is in many schools flexible enough to to allow um, stories to be told and and it to be a bit more relaxed and a bit more motivational. Um, rather than key stage four, which then tends to get you into the you must learn this, and you must know this, and you must be able to do this because you've got an exam coming up, which is important. Yeah, of course. I mean, how do you feel about when you're explaining things now in key stage three? Because you talked about physics earlier. Um, do you, in a sense, find it easier to kind of tackle a, a, a physics topic? Because what often people say, and obviously a lot of science teachers know that, you're often given the science that you don't know as much about to teach anyway. And that's many schools give you, you know, you, you can teach this, you can teach that um, and, and kind of brought, you know, put, put science into one big category. Um, how do you feel now about explaining things in physics compared to maybe your, your, more, your more, more passion within biology? Is it, is it easier, harder or, you know, just, just different? I, it's just different. It's, you know, all of these things. A lot of science teaching, you know, there are some some difficult concepts in in science, um, and and there are difficult concepts in in all three uh, disciplines. So in in biology, there's a you know the the idea of energy flow in ecosystems and that sort of stuff. A lot of kids find find quite difficult, and there's a lot of physics that I know uh, kids struggle with. It it's it's about using models, I think. It's about um, finding the right models to give to students to, and enough of different, different models so that all students can find the model that best way, suits our way of thinking. I think 
students often think that uh, science has all the answers, and you know, you often in a classroom you often hear the uh, uh, the, the rejoinder from 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 kids saying, "Oh yes, sir, but what is the answer?" and and actually, in science, sometimes we don't have any answers. We just have models that that we use to describe things. You know, uh, going back to physics, a, a good example is 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 gravity. Uh, generally, for our day to day description of gravity, we go back to Newton um, and and his laws. Um, if we want to go a bit further, then an alternative model is is, is Einstein. Um, Newton's model was in terms of a force. Einstein's model is in terms of things moving in, in masses moving in space time. Um, but still, scientists don't really know what gravity is. These are just models that describe and, and we are able to make predictions using, but we don't really know what, what gravity is. So there, there, is no, there is no answer, if you like. There are just a, a lot of different models that we can use to try and explain what's going on to try and uh, appreciate what's going on in our own minds and and i think that we need in science teaching to to teach with lots and lots of different models lots and lots of different ways of explaining things in the hope that all of the students with all their different ways of thinking in a in a particular cohort will find some model that they can they can latch on to and and use to build their own and develop their own understanding of a concept yeah i think uh you know models are really important and i was thinking about um uh how you express yourself with the people you work with i guess because i assume that um i, I, may, I may be wrong but do you when you're thinking about um showing those models in a, in a in a pictorial sense do you literally draw them for people and do they take, <laughs> do they take that that and then uh, put their layer of you know design uh, skills on top of that, or, or or for when you are explaining something, or you want to have something a particular concept in your books, do you draw them like a literal sketch, or do you are you particular? Or do you do it yourself on the computer and say this is definitely how I want it, and no one else gets involved, so to speak? So when you're trying to express your idea, maybe it's on a diffusion or whatever it might be, uh, do you do you uh, choose what exactly what you want, and then you say to the person in the, in the Pearson or whoever. Um, I would like it like this. How does how does that process work in terms of the imagery within the textbooks? I'm laughing because I think I must have driven several illustrators completely mad <laughs> over the years. I am the most hopeless artist, um, but I do, when I when I want to explain a model, I I want to use a diagram. You know, I, I think uh, you can see from the books I've worked on that they are full of diagrams, they're full of photos, they're full of illustrations. Um, and the diagrams, I do try and I do spend an awful lot of time getting getting right, but I can't cannot draw for toffee. So I I draw things sort of freehand, and I tend to use an iPad now, and because then I can import that into a Word document and then add arrows and then other things. So so illustrators get get this long lengthy document from me um, uh, about an illustration, which shows. What, I, what I'm trying to, to, to show in, in my drawing. And then it's normally got pictures that I've downloaded from the internet with explanations of why I want that particular aspect of that drawing also in my drawing and why I don't want that particular aspect in, in, in this drawing. And, and so, so illustrators who like dealing in pictures have to, have to read quite a lot of text, which, which sometimes they don't like. Um, and 
generally diagrams go back and forth um, a number of times before before I'm I'm happy with them um, because you know you you have to remember that illustrators uh, um, are often not scientists so so they are trying to sort of tap in, into my scientific way of thinking and and create something <laughs> which is intelligible and and good looking <laughs> out of it but it can be a lengthy process. Yeah, and it kind of interpret because I saw it this this year. You did some uh, material for um, COVID nineteen, some really good um, kind of work worksheet based things uh, with you know a, a, not animation, sorry, um, images that was tr- were trying to explain um, uh, obviously the science around COVID nineteen, which is is uh, you know a challenge to make something com- complex straightforward. But um, I may I may be misquoted, but whether it was Einstein or Richard Feynman said, obviously if you do, if you don't understand it enough, you can't if you can't uh, explain it simply enough. You don't understand the science, which must must be your challenge when you're trying to explain something that um, perhaps is not. She wouldn't have got the scientific literacy to understand everything you're going to try and get across about how a vaccine works or how your body responds in terms of its immune response. Um, have you got any thoughts about that? Of because of, of, that is you know that is your main thing, I guess, is trying to simplify those ideas in an age appropriate way. How do you think about um, that when you're approaching? very complex scientific processes uh, absolutely uh, you know you you really do have to have to understand something at, at the ins and outs of it to be able to to distill the essential aspects of it in order to explain it simply um, and you know that is that is something that any science writer be they a journalist or a textbook writer or, or whatever needs needs to needs to to get the hang of um, and it's it's something that you sort of learn on the job, really, um, and and teachers learn it as well. You know, in teaching, you get instant feedback if if you've if you've explained something, and then there's there's a, a raft of, of thirty blank faces in front of you afterwards. You know, <laughs> you know that you haven't explained it very well, and and the more experience you get, the better you are at, at sort of understanding the the body language of the students. Um, and how their minds are working in order to to explain um, things simply. Um, going back to the the, the COVID worksheets, uh, when when we had the first lockdown, uh, Pearson was uh, putting a, a lot of effort into making sure that um, students and teachers who were now at home could still have access online to the textbooks, the teaching materials and all the rest of it. So there was quite a lot of effort that needed to go into into engineering um, things so that that could happen. Um, and I also wanted to use the opportunity to tell to tell those stories. I was talking earlier about using modern examples to tell you know, old, old stories make, make concepts that keep being revisited in science education, like viruses, um, uh, give, give new examples and, and new approaches into, into understanding them. And, and COVID-19 pro- provided uh, an ideal opportunity. So I, I wrote a, a, a series of worksheets, which were all freely downloadable, um, with lots of diagrams, but designed to be used at home so that there were challenges that students could do at home and questions that they could look up on the internet uh, uh, and that's, that sort of thing. Um, but yes, for me, I, it, it's, it's been interesting because 
there are so many different ways in which vaccines, for example, are, are being developed, so many new ways. So, so you have to get a, a very good, clear understanding yourself about how those things work in quite a lot of detail and then sort of distill it down into key stage three language or key stage four language to, to make it understandable for those students and and appealing and motivating so that they can understand what what is going on um and equally uh, you know a lot of the those worksheets have been i've had feedback from from people who have used them who have been in their their 60s and 70s and they've they've come across them <laughs> they've written to me and say oh, i really like this activity can you look at this origami model i've made <laughs> one of your challenges yeah and i think um Having, uh, I've got uh, to myself and having uh, experienced the primary uh, lockdown uh, kind of mm. education um, uh, difficulties, should, I, should we say, um, I think that uh, in terms of resources generally and for science, I think what is very sometimes very difficult with science is being able to almost give somebody an activity worksheet, maybe two sides long maximum, where the, the, the student has the ability to engage with the activities they have to do but without any other external source so the internet say and i guess that is a chat i know a lot of children do have the internet but there's lots of children who don't have the internet and how in this particular obviously unique situation where we had you know how do we give children resources who don't have other resources how can they learn just 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 from the worksheet and i was just gonna i was gonna ask you about um, because I've, uh, in my past, we used many of many of your exploring uh, science worksheets. And when I was a teacher, sometimes you didn't know how well that particular activity was going to go down or how difficulties <laughs> they might have until until you gave it to them. And perhaps, you know, I'd pitched it wrong or I'd given them something too hard or too easy. Um, do you ever get the opportunity, you may well not have time, I suspect, to look at how um, your work is implemented in schools? Have you ever, do you get a chance to go to schools and think, oh, well, brilliant, they're using that or... Or and, and does it help you kind of think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have put that in there or maybe I'm going to change the way I did that. Do you have any chance to get feedback? I know you've done so many, so it's very difficult to perhaps get feedback on everything you've ever done. But do you ever get a chance to kind of get that kind of feedback from learning? Absolutely, yes. Um, so I get, you know, obviously um, the, the vast majority of, I, of feedback that I get either comes from, from emails um, or Twitter or LinkedIn and, and those sorts of stuff, but I, I do get a chance to go into to schools on a regular basis. Um, quite often, worksheets and activities that I have designed aren't being used in the way in which I designed them, and that's great. I really like that because you know when when I'm writing an activity or or designing a worksheet, I have a particular set of students in mind but those aren't the same students that you've got in front of you and and you aren't me so we all have different ways of thinking different ways of explaining things different interests um, and that applies as much to the teachers as it does to the students so it, it is great uh, when teachers take an activity and and just change change it subtly change it massively however in order to to suit best the the students that they've got in front of them and and very often uh, i go away from from a school saying oh, that was a really interesting way of using that that activity so next time i write it i'm going to change it like that um and and equally going into schools allows you to to make contact with with, with teachers on a personal level um dealing with people electronically the whole time is 
is fine, but you don't get to understand people's senses of humor and you don't you don't get to see their body language and, and, and that sort of stuff. So there's no, there's nothing that still you know beats going into schools, meeting real students, meeting real teachers, and and developing a an an ongoing dialogue with those teachers so that I I I can write something and say, look, I'm really not sure if this is going to work or not. Would you mind if the next time you come to to teaching this particular aspect, uh, just trying this out and and seeing if this works with your students or not? And and, and that's great. And that's, you know, if we are going to do the best for for our students, it has to be a two-way process um, between the, the people who are designing the, the curricula or three-way process, the people designing the, the specifications, the, the people like myself who are trying to d- deliver on those specifications and the teachers who are, who are delivering those, those materials to the students. And all, all of those different things need to come together in, in order to do the very best for our students. Yeah, I mean, in terms of kind of when I was trying to do the best for students in the sense that when you were giving them activities, what I was always surprised at as a teacher, when I, when I think back about activities and things I did with, with, in the classroom is that um, even though, for example, a, like a worksheet might be completely uh, to my mind, um, straightforward and, um, you know, sensible use of information, how little, and it does differ by gender, I won't say which gender is, is does this more, but how little sometimes they read before they do an activity. So you're looking at a practical activity and how much text they almost ignore before they get into the meat of the, oh, we've, we've got to get these results and we've got to do this, etc. cetera. Um, so I, I think, I guess, um, in terms of your resources, it's nice when teachers maybe do kind of adapt them, I guess, and, and change them to the learners they have. But um, how... Um, when students are doing t- definitely practicals, I would say um, they 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 listen much more to you as a teacher before you explain the, the, the answer, rather than until they get to much older when they actually start reading instructions yeah, at like yeah. A level. They, yeah. they will actually read some instructions. Um, but as you say, in your eleven to fourteen, a lot of students, and obviously it depends on ability. Some you know aren't strong readers, so they they don't engage with the text as much. Um, uh, how do you feel about um, kind of uh, kind of supporting on a lower 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 um attaining students i guess um because that is a challenge in itself isn't it do you, do you ever think about that end of the market and think about you know what is the most straightforward because there are lots of resources out there and um i guess you've done a bit of that in your time as well kind of the, the lower literacy students as well yep so I, there are all sorts of of, of ways in which we can support um lower literacy students and, and students who have got English as a second or a third language. Uh, you know, this is something that particularly comes up when I'm writing materials for, for um, foreign markets. Um, you have to write in, in English, which is much less idiomatic. And you have to, you have to realize that often the best way of showing students what they need to be doing is, is a clear diagram uh, rather than anything else. I, I often come back to the, the the Ikea instructions. If you bought some furniture from Ikea, you know, those instructions have no words in them. They are simply pictorial. Um, so it is possible to, to explain to, to people how to do something in a, in a very pictorial way. Um, and so I, I, try and do, I try and do that. Um, in terms of helping teachers, uh, quite often it's a, it, I, I, I advise teachers 
to uh, show students one step of a practical. So you read the first step, the teacher does it, then the students do it. And you follow that step by step through through the thing. So that's an, another, an, another thing you can use. Um, there's video materials, of course, which are more applicable to the digital resources that we're developing. So you know, showing students what to do, all, all of those things come into play. And, and for, for at the other end of the, 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 the scale, the, the students who are, um, you know, uh, are able to, to read more and take, take in more through, through reading, they still don't like reading. They still much prefer to just get on with the, the, the practical. Um, so, so a good ploy is just to leave out one of the instructions, I find. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you leave if, if you leave step three blank and they're all starting and say, well now what do we do <laughs> so you as a teacher yeah. can say well what do you think we've got to do <laughs> you write step three you tell me yes and often i, I um i also found that um specifically with practicals in science that um you could put a tray of stuff that was completely irrelevant to the practical <laughs> five items and it'd still pick it up and say well i definitely need one of those as well uh, so they wouldn't almost kind of you know force him. Do you actually do, do you actually need it? So almost towards the uh, my end of the summer schools, I was literally doing checklists. You need this, this, and this, and with pictures, you know, so they can say, well, I've got that, I've got that, I've got that, um, to help them decide, you know, uh, you know, what do they actually need? And I, and I definitely use pictures a lot more, even as you say for high ability sets. They're still they still yeah. want to do it the quickest way possible. What is the image that means that I can do this this first step there? What am I observing for the you know the next step? What am I recording for that? So uh, it's definitely, um, you know, it's a, it's a complex process. And I was used to think that um, as an ex-chemistry teacher, that the, the subject almost most closely aligned to, to, me, to me in terms of the management of the room was um, uh, home economics or, or catering because of yeah, the yeah. complexity of the tasks that you had to go through, the pieces of equipment you needed to know and how to use and name. Uh, so it was the closest when I went to, like, observe... Um, you know, people doing, uh, you know, cooking a, a lovely meal and doing GCC catering or something. They, um, you know, I, I really felt, and I didn't th think about it straight away, but it's only when I thought, well, this is actually almost the same challenge that I have uh, when I'm doing 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 my practical. So it's definitely kind of crossovers within subjects and things we can learn uh, within um, science, art, science as, as a subject and, and kind of improvement and learn from those other subjects. I was going to ask you, you mentioned international science, actually, and I was going to say, do you, do you do you you talked about the language being more straightforward, I guess, or, or fewer uh, um, kind of um, culturally specific words, I guess. Yeah. Um, anything else for the international market? Because I guess obviously it's, it's being delivered in in English in this case. But um, is there anything else that you change your how you change your materials? Well, I have a, I have actually written books that have been de designed to be translated into other languages. Right. Okay. okay. A challenge in itself. It's a bit like playing Chinese whispers sometimes. Um, yeah. and, and you you depend on a, on a, a very good translator to to work with you. Um, but generally, yes, the stuff I write for for foreign markets is 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 in English. Um, and apart apart from the the students uh, having to follow uh, instructions in non idiomatic English and to be. Uh, to use more diagrams, more pictures, fewer words. You have to do the same with the teachers as well. They, uh, the teachers often don't have English as a first language, and so presenting them with a with a huge, you know, set of pages of, t of teacher guide about all sorts of things they could do, and uh, you know, 
it, it, it's just not appropriate. So you have to really distill for them what what you need them to do. Of course, and um, break it down in, as you say, almost yeah. like the students, I guess, step by step. I'm thinking about um, experiments. I was going to ask you, um, just to kind of uh, wrap things up, uh, what, in your opinion, because you must have done lots of science experiments in, in your time, both as a teacher and then kind of writing science experiments. I just wondered your thoughts about... Um, are there any particular practicals or, or demonstrations uh, that you think uh, are really nice to illustrate to children a particular principle or is an investigation you've always found you got good feedback on? So in terms of practical science, we've talked a lot about that, I know. Um, what is it? What is the what are the few engaging practicals? Maybe maybe pick two, perhaps that you really like to write about or you've seen kids really uh, engage with in schools. I think that's a, that's a really hard, hard question. Um, <laughs> I part of the problem with 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 teaching practical uh, skills in schools is that uh, students are absolutely convinced that there has to be a right answer, and uh, and they often know what the right answer should be before they start doing the practical, uh, with the result that that they try and then get their results to fit what they think the results should show you because they think that that is correct. That's the way to do it. That's the only way they're going to get a good mark if, if, if they collect tape data which supports whatever preconceived ideas they have. And that's precisely the opposite of what they should be doing. They should be collecting data and then if it doesn't match their predictions, asking themselves why it doesn't match their predictions. Um, you know, we've seen this happening in the, in the pandemic. All sorts of people have come up with all sorts of models, and some of them have been more accurate than others. So you need to go back to your data. You need to go back to your, your theories, your ideas behind, behind things and, and ask yourselves, why, isn't, why, why aren't these predictions panning out as I thought, that, I thought they would? Um, so thinking about this, one, one, one experiment that does, does appeal to me in, in this light um, in terms of not telling students what, what is going to happen and, uh, and what is expected is, is that famous experiment by Herschel when he was looking for, when he was looking for the different uh, amounts of energy carried by, by different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spe spectrum. So if you get a, a prism and you direct sunlight through it into a box and you can uh, turn it into into the normal spectrum of the normal visible spectrum of colors and then you put a, a thermometer on violet and a thermometer on yellow orange and a thermometer on red and then you put uh, another thermometer just beyond red on a, on a part where there's no light shining and you you ask the students you know what's what's going to happen some will say well it's light sir so so the, the temperature is not going to change. Others will say, "Oh no, no, no! This uh, this light's carrying energy." Um, now I've heard that ultraviolet is really dangerous. That must be the most most uh, one carrying the most energy. So I predict that one's going to reach the higher temperature. Others will say, "Oh no, no, no! I've I, I I've seen those those red lamps and and they're used for heating and and um, ovens and that's that sort of stuff toasters they light up red so red must be the, the one that carries the most energy and then you show show them this and, and the one that becomes the hottest shows the highest temperature is the thermometer that is beyond red and you ask them you know why is that what's happening and there's a lot of scratching of heads if they don't know the answer and i think that's a that's a great a great way of uh, a, a, an interesting practical uh, that 
that students can can really get into if you don't tell them the answer first. Um, and so, so, so that, that that would be my choice for, for, for from the top of my head. Yeah, no, and as saying, you know, not not having that right answer, and I think as you, as you say, it's it's really important for students to have in that opportunity to for, to investigate science, and and as you've been as we mentioning, not having a specific answer or thinking about how the best way there is to do something, uh, you know, even if it's, you know, how could I improve my yield making my copper sulfate crystals? What is the best approach I could take? Uh, because I think we could draw, or we need to draw on obviously the science that's going on around us and thinking about, you know, there's these three different vaccines, there's all, all different pros and cons about each solution to this particular problem. Uh, this is what real scientists do. They, they try and find the optimal solution for a particular situation and sometimes they might not get it right but yeah and I think it's important for students obviously to students uh, sorry teachers to talk to students about that and, and get that um you know the overview that science as you say is not just uh this is the right answer and then and, and yes there are some things that are right right as it were correct but we've got to think about a science in a wider context and um uh, educate them uh, that, that, that things life outside the, the classroom is a bit messier. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely, it is. And if, if you know, one of the other aspects of the pandemic is that it has it, it has allowed the propagation of a lot of fake news about about science and uh, uh, and that sort of stuff. And I think that one of the you know most most of our students that go through schools will not go into careers in science and may not use science ever again but if through their science education we can get them to do two things which is to ask themselves is the evidence that i've been presented with for this good evidence and if it is good evidence what is it telling me objectively those are the the, the two key points those are the two points that are at the heart of science and hopefully those are the two key points that, that students will continue to, to be able to engage with and remember uh, a long time after their school days. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. I really, really enjoyed our chat this morning and uh, we've done lots of interesting ideas regarding both just science education, you know, how we can illustrate it in the, in the best way and explain it. Uh, but also some of those wider science issues. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us um, and I uh, hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to Mark's stories behind one of the most well-used resources for Key Stage 3 science. If you've got a story you want to share on the podcast, why not get in touch so we can get your view from the lab please send me an email at andrew.woods at pearson.com and we can get the conversation started. Until next time, goodbye.